All right. Well, Revelation is where we're going to be. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 15 or a device if you want to swipe there. Um, this is a book that is full of climactic images. And, and so readers are urged to think about the ultimate realities of life. But as we work through this book, one theme should be exceedingly clear to us, and that is that Jesus is supreme. The very beginning of the book, what we read is that this book is about Jesus, fully about Jesus. And so we, we are intended, as we read this book, to see his goodness. His power is unmatched. His love is sacrificial. His patience is enduring. He is exactly what we need. So as we read Revelation, if we're not seeing Jesus, if Jesus isn't being preached to us, we're reading it the wrong way. So as we read this then, we should hear the call. Look at Jesus. Believe the gospel. Because the gospel is all about Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to read Revelation 15 for us. And then we'll jump into this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands." And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. I pray that we can blow the smoke away that maybe is confusing to us, and I pray that it would be really clear, Jesus would be really clear to us to help us to fix our eyes on him and help us to understand what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so to begin, clearly we hear the prevalence of the number seven. Again, seven angels, seven plagues, seven golden bowls. This number symbolizes a reality that is completed. It speaks to completion or perfection. We get this emphasis being expressed clearly in verse 1 as it speaks to a finalized nature of God's wrath. We read there, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them... The wrath of God is finished. The seven plagues are speaking to expressions of God's wrath that is being poured out on the earth, even today. 
We talked earlier in our series on Revelation how God's wrath is depicted in certain ways. Here with the bowls or the plagues, but, but also then it talks about seals and trumpets as well earlier on in Revelation. So we're going to look at the bowls more closely next week because that's what the next chapter is. But all of these, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, the plagues are speaking to many judgments that point to God's ultimate final judgment that is to come. Okay, so, so all of these are many judgments that are pointing us forward, trying to get us to that ultimate climactic judgment that will be experienced when Jesus returns. So they're speaking to spiritual plagues that are afflicting those who bear the spiritual bar- mark of the beast, here and now, today. Now, as we think about the idea of the wrath of God is finished, I hope this can be a helpful reminder for us in a number of different ways. First, it communicates the effectiveness of God's wrath. God's wrath is effective. In the symbolic vision where Satan is depicted as a great red dragon, we see Satan unable to execute his wrath in a way that satisfied himself. He's waiting for the baby to be born, and he could not capture and kill the baby. He could not carry out his wrath. His wrath was insufficient for himself. And this then clearly ripples out to a wrath that is ineffective in every other way. Despite it being ineffective, he continually seeks to pour out wrath, to injure and harm. God's wrath is not like Satan's. God's wrath is effective. In God's wrath, we see him destroying evil while simultaneously saving those who are marked with the seal of God. So when we read the wrath of God is finished, it should communicate to us this reality that God's wrath is effective. Secondly, God's wrath should evoke a sense of freedom for us. Freedom from the idea that we have to pour out wrath ourselves. We are a people who want to pour out wrath in certain circumstances in our lives. When a spouse says something hurtful to us, we want to say something sharp back at them. Maybe when a pet makes a mess on the carpet, we want to pour out wrath on our pet. When a child sasses a parent, when customer service fails us, we want to pour out wrath in some way. And without fail, what we do after those scenarios have passed is we find ourselves laying in bed at night, going to sleep, standing in the shower, replaying all the things, the snarky things we wish we would have said and how we really could have poked that person if only we would have thought to say this thing at that time. Or if you are really quick-witted and you do say those things, then you're probably laying in bed regretting that you said it and thinking about the apology that you have to offer to somebody. The pouring out of wrath seems appealing initially. And so satisfying in that moment. But it will eventually eat us up inside. And this is why Christians are instructed in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Our efforts to avenge ourselves or to avenge our loved ones will not bring about the solution we desire. This past week, my wife received an email that I read as very condescending. 
towards her. And so as her husband, I wanted to respond. I wanted to respond in a very pointed way to this email. So Casey and I talked about it, and it was very clear in our conversation that my intent was not to bring resolution to this issue. I more just wanted to give it back. So I did not become a keyboard warrior, thanks to my wife. Uh, But this does not mean that we completely disengage either, right? If if we completely disengage, ultimately we are going to become bitter people. And someday, when we can no longer contain the bitterness, we're going to blow up on somebody. We must graciously work for resolution. And so we've got to ask ourselves, you know, when, when we feel that desire to want to lash out, to pour out wrath on someone, what do we hope to accomplish? And whatever our response might be, what are we hoping we would accomplish in that interaction? So as much as God's wrath, when we read the book of Revelation or read other parts of the Bible, as much as God's wrath might strike fear in us, it is intended to comfort us. God's wrath is intended to free us so that we don't need to try and act like God. We don't need to try and pour out wrath in a way that, that we would find satisfactory. Because we'll, we'll never find that. It will never happen. So though, for those of us who are sealed by God, who are believing the gospel, have been saved by Jesus, that there really needs to be no fear when we think about God's wrath. Now part of my argument for this perspective on God's wrath also flows from how the visions that John receives in Revelation correlate between wrath and worship. So so we see this correlation happening. There's wrath being poured out and then worship happens by God's people. When we pull back and look at this within Revelation as a whole, we see this to be really common. So chapters 12 and 13, what we're seeing is God's wrath being poured out and the throwdown of the dragon and the beasts. Right after that then, in chapter 14, begins with Jesus' church singing a song of victory for what God has accomplished. Then chapters 14 and 15 speak of God's wrath again. And then this is immediately followed by a song of God's glory. Chapters 16 to 18, again, speak of God's wrath being poured out in particular ways. And in chapter 19, it begins with the multitudes of heaven crying out in worship to God. So we see this interplay going on over and over in Revelation. God's wrath is poured out and his people worship him. So they work together. And the song being sung in verses 3 and 4 here in Revelation 15 is helpful in showing us the goodness in God's wrath. But before we look at that, and I do want to spend some time looking at the goodness in God's wrath, let's understand the scene surrounding the singing of this song. So John begins here. He says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. Okay, He saw what appeared. I love how John's humanity shines through here. Right? Like he's getting this, these visions. He's trying to describe what he's seen. But in a sense, the words are failing him. Right? He's, he appears to see. It's not exactly, maybe, but he's trying to put words, our words, the words that we have here on earth, uh, to these visions so that then he can describe for us. He's doing his best. He's trying. 
And he sees what he describes here as a sea of glass with fire. This is exactly what John saw stretching out from the throne of God back in chapter 4. Okay, when, when John was brought into the throne room. Now, throughout the Bible, rough and chaotic seas are a metaphor for sin and for evil. The picture here is one of a glassy sea. So here, there is no evil that brings upheaval. Okay? Evil has been vanquished. There is no evil to royal the seas. The wrath of God has spoken. It is the finisher of evil. And around the sea of glass then are those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Now, upon first reading, it can be easy to infer some level of achievement by those who are here. It says they had conquered, right? So they they must have done something here that allowed John to write like they've conquered the beast. They must have gone out to fight some battles. In some way, maybe we need to pat them on the back. Maybe they've done something like David, who gathered his stones and slayed Goliath. And I'd say, no, not at all. We don't pat these people on the back for the salvation that they have created. This is all about God and the salvation he's created. The right way to read about David and Goliath is David is a picture of Jesus. He's an image of Jesus. Goliath is a picture of our sin and of evil. So Jesus is the ultimate David, slain sin and evil for us. We we are never David. Never. Who are we in that story? We're the Israelite army on the side, laying in the fetal position, unwilling to go out and fight the battle that only Jesus can fight for us. So, in this picture here in Revelation 15, again, we see what the Bible does over and over. The Bible is insistent on painting a picture of what salvation is. Salvation is God fighting. And salvation is humanity trusting in God to fight for us. God goes to battle, we watch. That is what salvation is. Exodus 14, 14 is a brilliant description of this. So this is right before God's people are going to cross the Red Sea. Okay, so God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. Now he is about to bring them across the Red Sea. And he says, the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. So then right after this, God delivers his people through the Red Sea. They make it over to the other side. In that fight, Israel only needed to be silent. But after, when they got to the other side, when their enemy was defeated, they didn't stay silent. They erupted in song. We're going to get back to that. But similarly to that reality, as God is going out to fight and to pour out his wrath, Here, in Revelation 15, we see his followers holding harps, about to sing a song. The imagery of Jesus' church being involved in this fight by wielding harps speaks to the nature of salvation. I mean, most people wouldn't say that harps are a weapon of war. But that's the picture that we're getting here. 
Our weapon is believing the gospel. Our, our weapon is worship of Jesus. That is our weapon. We glimpse this in many ways throughout the Bible, but one of the ways I thought this past week is when Jesus, right before he is going to be arrested and crucified and killed, the, the soldiers are coming to get him, okay? And he's with some of his disciples, and the soldiers come, and one of his disciples, Peter, cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And what does Jesus do? Does he encourage his followers to, to fight that battle? No, he kills it. He takes the ear, he puts it back on, he heals the man, tells Peter, put your sword down. That's not the battle I'm here to fight. This is also why in Ephesians 6 we read, for Christians they are called to ready themselves for battle by putting on truth. We ready ourselves for battle by putting on Jesus' righteousness, by putting on faith, by putting on the word of God. And then we engage in an ongoing manner by praying and being actively involved in the proclamation of the gospel, living on mission. So we are not called in the Christian life to pick up traditional weapons of warfare because our battle is not against physical forces. Now we live in a world, in a country that is filled with an abundance of warring. It's all around us. And it looks many different ways. Politics, right? There's tons of political warring. Property lines. Maybe you've had a neighbor who, like, just tells you to get off his property or mows their lawn over onto yours. Or, like, there's property lines warring as well. There's pets. I was reading last night, someone, there's a, a Facebook group called Friendly Fridley. And there's oftentimes not a lot of friendly things going on on there. Uh, but I was reading on there how somebody called the cops on somebody else's dog because it was barking. So, so there's warring over pets as well. There's wars between spouses, wars about money. The list goes on and on and on. Now underneath all of these wars are spiritual beliefs. Spiritual beliefs undergird all of these thoughts and beliefs. Something in all of these circumstances is being worshipped. So sin is essentially misplaced worship, right? People are worshipping something, my lawn, don't walk on my lawn, and so I'm going to make sure my neighbors don't cross that. We're going to worship politicians, right, or, or a certain ideology, and so we're going to go to battle for that. It's misplaced worship. This is what sin is. Revelation is relentlessly telling us we are in a spiritual battle. All of the things that we are encountering in our everyday lives, this is part of the spiritual battle we are in. Our life, this life, your life is a spiritual battle, primarily. Far beyond the physical battles that you're fighting. It is a spiritual battle. And the primary way to engage is through believing the gospel, through worshiping Jesus. That is our weapon of warfare, worshiping Jesus. This is how we should engage in the culture wars of our day. Okay, I'm going to talk for poli about politics here for a moment. Uh, we, we are apolitical, so 
uh, if you're looking for a hot take, you're going to get a Jesus take, okay? So, so here's the deal. Politics. Satan wants us. He wants us to give ourselves to either a conservative or a progressive agenda. That's what he wants from us. To commit to one or the other. So as to just slightly pull us away from a wholehearted commitment to Jesus. So some of us, maybe we feel super strong about politics. Satan's all in on that. But, but he just wants you to be like just a little bit. And, and I'm not saying don't be engaged in politics, okay? Be a Jesus follower in your engagement. Hold Jesus up far and uh, first most in your engagement. So the wrong battle is right and left. That, that's not the right battle. Right side of politics, left side of politics, that is not the right battle for us. Because at the end of the day, I hope, wherever you find yourself, I hope you can admit that both agendas are deeply flawed. Both agendas are deeply flawed. Just, just from the fact that we live in a broken world, a world filled with sin, we should be able to admit that as Christians. Both agendas are deeply flawed. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, I guarantee you, neither of those men are what your soul craves for. You will not find what you are looking for in them or their parties, not even close. And so what, what these individuals want you to do is to get sucked into that battle, ultimately through, through Satan's motivation. They want you to get sucked into that battle and go to battle for them. And I, I'm, I'm here to tell you like that's the wrong battle. To go either way. What they want you to do is sing a song that heralds the accomplishments of their respective parties. Don't do it. Don't do it. Be for Jesus. Okay? Let Jesus guide how you engage in those reality. The evidence of sin in this world and the corresponding wrath in our world should drive us to Jesus, to yearn for something better, to sing Jesus' praise. Wrath and worship are intended to be complementary. When we see God's wrath poured out in certain ways, then, then we want to worship Jesus. Okay, and, and it's not our role to call out for God's wrath to be poured out on certain people, on people on the other side of the political spectrum, right? Like, we, we run after them. Not with trying to get them to our side, but we run after them with the hope of the gospel. If others are going to be saved by Jesus, they need to encounter relentless belief in him. And that's our call as followers of Jesus, to be relentless in our believing in Jesus. In every part of our lives, it's always about Jesus. How you view food, okay? How you mow your lawn, how you watch movies, all of it, all of it. I'm not saying don't be engaged in culture. Be engaged in culture, but do it through Jesus. Verse 3 is telling us that at the end of history, the song that is going to be sung by the conquerors is the song of the Lamb. That is the song that's going to be sung. 
The song of the Lamb. This song is kind of like the key at the back of a crossword puzzle book. You know, um, when you can't figure out an answer to a crossword puzzle, what do you do? You turn to the back, right? And you see, oh, okay, that, that's what I need to fill in that, those blanks. This song is telling us who is great and amazing. This song is telling us who is just and true. It tells us who is the king of all the nations. It says all nations will come and worship Jesus. That's what's going to happen in the end. If Jesus is the only one standing at the end, then Jesus is the only one worthwhile worshiping today. Okay? Not Bezos, not Zuckerberg, not Elon Musk, not Tom Brady or LeBron James, not your favorite athlete, not your favorite celebrity. Only Jesus. The song that will be sung for all of eternity will be a song about Jesus. And specifically, that song is a song of salvation, of Jesus' salvation. There's an emphasis on salvation in this song. It was also referred to as the Song of Moses. So when we're reading Song of Moses, this is bringing us back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And this is the song I was referring to earlier. That song right after, okay? Israel's delivered across the Red Sea. Their enemy is swallowed up. And this is the song then that they begin to sing. God saves Israel from slavery in Egypt. Israel looked back across the Red Sea, huffing and puffing over the landscape where their enemies lay scattered, dead, and are probably asking, what just happened? Exodus 14 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So this is the end of chapter 14, right? God just delivers his people. And then chapter 15 is the song of Moses. This is a song sung by Moses and Israel, remarking at God's power and his strength and his greatness and his love. This is their song of salvation. That was an unthinkable rescue. What God carried out when he delivered his people out of Egypt. But the rescue commenced by Jesus on the cross is far greater. It's far greater in scale. Right? God was saving his nation, his people. But Jesus' salvation touches every nation. It's inviting everybody into it so the scale is far bigger what Jesus is doing. It's also a love of enemy, right? God was destroying his, Israel's enemies as he delivered his people from Egypt and ultimately he will destroy his enemies but today, today there is an opportunity for even God's enemies to turn to him, to trust in him. The singers of this song then are heralding Jesus for his great and amazing deeds. Jesus had many great and amazing deeds. We can look at the Gospels, we can see many of them. So this has in sight Jesus turning water into wine and thus increasing the joy of those who are at that marriage celebration. 
It has in mind the Jesus teaching on many things to both warn his people and to encourage his people. So it includes his teaching as well. It has in mind Jesus walking through doors to comfort his fear-filled followers. It has in mind Jesus drawing near to social outcasts who were treated like the plague. It has in mind Jesus healing those who were sick and diseased. It has in mind God's wrath as well. But all of these are small parts pointing to the one act of Jesus on the cross where his great love and his amazing grace are put on display and provide the resolution to our greatest problem. The cross is the pinnacle of Jesus' greatness. This is illustrated even in the name of this song. Do you see what it's called? The Song of the Lamb. It's the song of Moses, but it's also the song of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus slain for us. Our gaze as we sing this song is intended to be drawn to Calvary, where God takes tears and he turns them into joy. That's the intent for those singing this song. The song proclaims also that Jesus' ways are just and true. Throughout our lives, Satan will take the confounding pain we encounter in this world and he will whisper in our ears, is God actually good? Would a good God actually allow this to happen? The gospel is good news because we are saved by grace. Jesus saves the undeserving. Our sin condemns us. Every day we wake up gives us evidence of grace. Our sin says we deserve destruction. Jesus is just because he took on our destruction for us. And day after day, he also shows his patience by chasing us, bearing with us, and our foolish attempts to find satisfaction outside of him. Where this world is headed is all nations will come and worship Jesus. Jesus is the point of everything. The singers of this song then ask a couple of questions in it. Who will not fear your name, O God? Who will not glorify your name? Who will not see the goodness that's found in you? Who will continue in their rebellion against you? And then the song goes on to exclaim that Jesus is the epitome of goodness. He's the epitome of that which is right, of perfection. So maybe some of us look at this and we wonder, why do so many people hate Jesus? I think for many of us who are church folk, it's, it's maybe easier for us to look outside the church walls and we wonder, what's wrong with people? So I don't know that that's the best question for us. There's a better question we can ask ourselves. Why are we so casual towards Jesus? Why are we so often unmoved from our selfish desires? Why are we unmoved from our sinful 
pursuits. Why are we not struck by God's goodness? Why are we drawn to so many things other than Jesus? When he says over and over and over, I am what you are looking for. I have what will satisfy you. Senate Church, we live in a world that is filled with the proud boasting of Satan. The dragon and the beasts fill our experience with anything that will distract us from Jesus. To divert our attention away from singing this song. To draw our worship away from Jesus. Satan beckons us to sing songs of personal comfort. He's beckoning us to sing songs of pleasure. To sing songs of luxury. Songs declaring the greatness of man. Songs declaring the greatness of the things of this world. This song of the Lamb is not merely a future song for us to sing. This is the song we need to sing today, tonight, tomorrow when we wake up, day after day. We need to sing the song of the Lamb. You need to sing this to yourself and to others. You need to preach this to yourself and to others to remind us, to remind me of Jesus' greatness, of his justice, that he alone is good, that he alone is holy, that he alone is righteous, that he alone is worthy of our affection and our worship. Two points of gospel application for us as we wrap up this morning. First of all, true salvation is only found in Jesus. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Every single one of us is drawn to false saviors. I know you are. I know myself, and I know you're just like me in this regard. We are all drawn to false saviors, to things that make enticing promises, but that cannot deliver on those promises. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can satisfy you. Only Jesus. Over and over, we've got to preach this to ourselves because you're bombarded every day with contrary messages saying, no, a little bit more of this dessert and, oh, that will be perfect. I'm not saying you can't have a little bit more of the dessert. Just don't pin your hopes on it. Only Jesus can satisfy us because only he can save us. So may we be serious about heralding Jesus' salvation. Not the salvation of other things, of other people. Only Jesus. Secondly, Jesus is worthy of your worship. I want to go in a direction with this that maybe is a little, a little different. There is no one else in this world, there is no other thing in this world that can handle your worship, that can sustain your worship of it, okay? Maybe it's a person, maybe they'll become immensely prideful, and eventually their life will blow up. So it'll either lead someone to pride, or 
it will cause someone to break under the pressure of it. My, my wife and I are immensely grateful for directives we were given as we were getting married. Just this reality that your spouse does not complete you. If you believe that your spouse completes you, that puts an undue pressure upon your spouse. There is no spouse who can complete you. Only Jesus can complete you. So free your spouse from that. We complement one another for sure, but we do not complete one another. So take that burden, that yoke off of your spouse, the idea that they are called to complete you. They won't. They can't. Only Jesus is worthy of our worship, and only he can stand up under, can take our worship. An abundance of money tricks us into invincibility. Health can be taken from us in an instant. Possessions, which many of us chase after possessions, right? The next phone, the next car, a little bigger house. Many of us chase after possessions. Possessions are what fill up dumps, junkyards. That's where possessions end up. They rust, they rot, they break, they become obsolete. Sports teams will disappoint us. If you are a Minnesota Vikings fan, you should amen that (laughs) proudly. They will disappoint you. I think about this for my kids, too. Our family loves athletics, and we're engaged. Like There is always balls in our backyard. Something's being kicked, thrown, shot all the time. It's always happening. But sports can lead us to really dark places. I want my kids to enjoy sports. I don't want my kids to worship them because sports cannot handle our worship. They will break down. A dream job will still feel like work. It will still require you to work. There is nothing in this world that can hold up your worship. Only Jesus. So give the worthy one your worship.